Well, good morning. Let me, uh, let me ask you to remain standing as we prepare to hear God's Word. Again, I want to say to you, Merry Christmas. That was okay. Yeah, Merry Christmas. There it is. Now, it's funny, when you look at this passage that's coming before you, I'm sure many of you are looking at it and you're thinking, now, hold on a second. That's not a Christmas passage. And I get it. Like, that's totally fine. Two things about that. One, come back tonight for our candle lighting service. We will have one of those more traditional Christmas passages for you. Uh, And two, actually, this is a Christmas passage in a way. We're going to, in this passage, see how God has always been preparing a deliverer to redeem His people. This deliverance through Moses of Israel is a paradigm because one day God will send the final, the true deliverer to redeem the whole world. So as I'm reading this passage from Exodus chapter 4, as you read it or as you hear it, think to yourself, God is the one who's sending the true and final deliverer, Jesus, to us. Let's pick up the story in Exodus chapter 3, and then we'll skip to chapter 4. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some of the water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak." But Moses said, "'Oh, my Lord, please send someone else.' Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, "'Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do these signs. So Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, 
See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that He had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray that You would help us by Your Spirit to see Jesus. Lord, on this last Sunday of Advent, this Christmas Eve, we long to see through these pages the true Deliverer, to be reminded that He has not just come to bring us out of slavery, but rather has set us free from sin and death and the power of the evil one. We pray that Jesus would be glorified and worshiped in this speaking and hearing. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So a few weeks ago, our family got a new puppy. Her name is Willa. She is a San Antonio special, which means she's a mix, probably a German short-haired pointer, and something else we don't know what she is. And she is super cute and really fun, but I have to say it has been an adjustment for me personally. It's been an adjustment. Maybe some of you are out there and you're like the ones who take care of the dog and the others of you are like, I'll do my best, but this is hard. That's kind of me, you know? I'm so glad we have her. But it is hard to get up in the morning and instead of going straight to my coffee, to go and put on a jacket so that I can stand out with her and wait for her to go to the restroom, right? Nine days out of 10, I have to clean up one of her accidents and it's just a little difficult. Now, I tell you that story. Quick disclaimer, Haley, I love our dog. I really do. Now, I tell you that story, just a simple, silly little story to remind us that in all of our callings, whether they're huge callings like going and delivering the people out of Egypt and bringing them to Israel, or just small callings like looking after a dog, there's difficulties, there's obstacles in every single one of those callings, right? If you want to take care of a dog, you're going to have to pick up its poop. That's just how it works. Last week, we came into the presence of God, and God gave Moses this beautiful calling to deliver the people out of Egypt. It's a beautiful calling. It's a beautiful calling, but Moses is realizing now, oh, this is going to be pretty difficult. I hope all of you get excited about what God has called you to do in His kingdom. I hope you get excited about it. Each one of us have different callings from the Lord. We're called to be fathers and husbands. We're called to be church members. We're called to be children. We're called, we're called to have big vocations in our jobs. We're called to have little callings in the way that we love our neighbors and the way we visit and care for the sick and tend to others around us. But in all of those callings, even if we're excited about them, we realize that there are obstacles and difficulties along the way. Moses gets this, and you probably noticed in the passage he kept on making up new excuses about how hard it was going to be. And because of that, we 
and also Moses, needs encouragement. We need encouragement in our callings. Because here's the reality. What we find in this passage is that the biggest obstacle to our callings is not how difficult the task is, and it's certainly not God's power. The biggest obstacle a lot of times in our callings is ourselves, right? It's ourselves. Even the Apostle Paul, one of the most diligent disciples of Jesus, said this to the Corinthians, who is sufficient for all of these things? Who's sufficient for these callings that God has given us? The answer is clearly no one. No one is sufficient for the callings that we've been given, but God is. But God is. In our passage, Moses realizes personally that he is not sufficient for these things. And in all of our lives, we should recognize that we're not sufficient for the tasks that God has given us. But God meets Moses' weakness with His grace. But God meets Moses' weakness with His grace. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Moses' doubts and deficiencies and see how God meets them with signs and with His presence. We're going to see how God meets Moses' doubts and deficiencies with His signs and with His presence, and then we'll apply that to our lives, okay? So first, God meets Moses' doubts. He meets Moses' doubts with some cool signs. There are three of them, but look at verse 1 with me. Then Moses answered the Lord, but behold, the Israelites will not believe me or listen to my voice. They're going to say, the Lord did not appear to you. Now, it's hard to pinpoint exactly why Moses had these doubts. Maybe he just thought that the Israelites could not possibly believe that this former prince of Egypt could be their deliverer. Maybe, maybe his, uh, they doubted, maybe the Israelites would have doubted that this was actually their God, Yahweh, that had appeared to Moses. Or maybe Moses was just kind of making it up because he himself needed God to strengthen him. And so God graciously meets Moses. He gives him three signs. Now, a quick word on signs. Signs are just that. They are pointers. They are saying or telling us to look to something else, something greater and more important. They might be wondrous in themselves, but they point to a wondrous God. The first is recorded in verses 2 through 5. God tells Moses to throw his shepherd's staff on the ground, then Moses does so, and he runs away in fear because it turns into a snake. There's a little bit of an Indiana Jones situation going on right here, right? But then God encourages him to pick it up by the tail, and it turns back into a staff. What does the sign mean? It's interesting, the snake... The uraeus is a rearing cobra and a symbol of the power of Egypt, the royal power of Egypt. If you visit some palaces in Egypt, you'll see these serpents that are painted around the top of the ceiling. It's kind of like crown molding in a palace. It's not a design choice that you should go for in your houses, but that's how they decorated their palaces. And this serpent represented a god called Nehebkau. Nehebkau. He was the protector of Egypt, the attendant of Pharaoh when he died, and he was also worn on those 
uh, crowns of Pharaoh. Some of you probably have that snake on the crown in your head as I say this. In Egyptian mythology, Nehebkau gains power by swallowing seven cobras. And after he swallows those seven cobras, he is uh, uh, immune to magic and fire and water. This sign then to Moses reminds Moses that he will soon face all of the power and the might of Egypt and Pharaoh. And his impulse is just like our impulse to run away. But God says, no, you can pick that serpent up by its tail and you will not be harmed. As I was kind of researching this serpent, something struck me from actually Exodus chapter 7 that is relevant and beautiful. This is the first time that Moses actually goes into Pharaoh and he says, hey, Yahweh has told me to tell you to let my people go. This is the first confrontation. And so, the first thing that Moses does is he throws the staff on the ground and it becomes a serpent. And Pharaoh, not to be outdone here, he gathers his magicians and his wise men and his sorcerers and they conjure up serpents in order to show that their gods were just as powerful as this Yahweh. But then in chapter 7, verse 12, beautiful little comment, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. It's this awesome connection between the genesis of this snake god and the fact that God is powerful over all of the so-called gods of the Egyptians. Oh God, oh God, it's beautiful. Where serpent is your victory? The next sign is the sign of leprosy and its healing in verses 6 through 7. You probably remember how good the Egyptians are at embalming people. That's how we get mummies, right? But we also find from the ancient text that Egyptians are some of the best doctors of the ancient world. So Herodotus, the father of history, writing in the 5th century, he says this, the practice of medicine is so divided among the Egyptians that each physician is a healer of one disease and no more. All the country is full of physicians, some of the eye, some of the teeth, some of what pertains to the belly, and some of the hidden diseases. In other words, it sounds like Egypt was very similar to Redeemer Presbyterian Church. You say, I need a doctor, and people stand up and say, what specialty? What's even more interesting about this sign is that the Egyptians despised shepherds. Genesis 46-34 tells us that shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians probably because they were smelly and thought they carried disease. The wool that they wore, right, you made clothes out of the wool, would also have been really smelly in hot Egypt, and that's why they Egyptians preferred linen clothes. This is why Jacob gives his brothers linen clothes as a gift. Let's put this together. When the plagues do come upon the Egyptians, all of the might of the Egyptian medical class is unable to save. All of the might of the Egyptian medical class is unable to save. It's only from a lowly, stinky Hebrew shepherd that God shows himself to be the true physician. Finally, let's look at the last sign, the Nile turning into blood. The Egyptians 
really will get this one in full swing. They saw the Nile as their lifeblood. Every year it would flood. We probably know this, bringing silt down and making the farmland around the Nile Basin incredible. It also brought game and fish. It was the source of all their food, right? Ancient civilizations really needed food to survive, and the Nile was the perfect source of it. The perfect source of it. The Egyptians worshipped the river. They called it the father of life and the mother of us all. Having something so foundational as the Nile River meant that their caloric intake could increase exponentially. They could grow bigger and stronger than others. They also had time in the off-season while it was flooding to go and develop things like art and culture and weaponry. The Nile was the source of the power of Egypt. It was also very personal for Moses and the Israelites, wasn't it? right? It was the Nile that captured the blood of the Hebrew children. It was the Nile that almost captured the blood of Moses before God divinely saved him by his adopted mother picking him up from the reeds. So, let's just think about those signs for a second, that sign for a second. God was both personally promising Moses and His people salvation and also promising that He would bring the political might of Egypt to its knees. Now, what do these signs mean for us? How can we apply these to our lives? First, God's fingerprints truly are everywhere. As Christians, we can really believe that God is still living and active and doing things in this world, that He is pointing to His goodness and His glory all the time in little ways and in big ways, in ways that He has protected your family from difficulty, in ways that He has shown His love for you through the friends around you. God's signs are still present in this world, and He will still provide them to lead His people. Secondly, the signs should strengthen our faith, but sometimes they can't. In fact, signs don't create faith by themselves. This is a sad reality of this story. We all come here, you know, and a lot of people come at Christmas time and Easter, and we hear the stories over and over. We hear the signs that God has done, and we're praying that they create and sustain faith in us that God really is who He says He is. But sometimes, Sometimes signs actually harden our hearts. Look with me at verse 21. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. In the sad sin darkness of this world, sometimes when evil sees God at work, evil closes its heart. If you're worried that that's where you are today, I want to ask you or plead with you, just say to God, God, please soften my heart to see you at work. Do that. One of the saddest realities of our modern world is that the more we learn about God's world and His Word, the more we should believe in the veracity of that baby in the manger of the reality of the resurrection, of the hope of His return, the more we should believe it. 
just based on the signs, His handiwork that God has given to us, that intricate code called DNA, the infinitesimally small chance that life has emerged on this planet, that life could be sustained at all, let alone complex life, let alone that a planet would have all the properties necessary for that life, let alone that the universe exists to have all of those things possible, should be sign enough that God is real and that He's here. We think that signs would open eyes, but just as often they blind eyes. Finally, our predominant form of encouragement shouldn't be in looking for signs out there. It should just be in reading and rehearsing again the signs of God as they come to us in the Scripture by hearing, by remembering these stories by looking at the Word of God and interpreting what God is doing in the world. And I'll give you, a, a, I think, something that was really beautiful that I stumbled across this week. In the early 20th century, when King Tut's tomb was discovered, one of the archaeologists who went in, he kind of rode out. He said, you know, there were all these trappings and all the things, and then there were King Tut's gods lined up nicely in a row collecting dust. Isn't it interesting? The one time that our God was put in a tomb, He didn't stay there for 2,000 years, but broke out on the third day. God meets our doubts with signs of encouragement, the little things that we see in life, also the truth and veracity of the Scripture. God also meets our deficiencies with gifts of encouragement, right? Look at the deficiencies that Moses just starts pouring out. We see them in verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Literally, Moses says, I'm heavy of mouth and heavy of tongue. Some commentators think he might be a stutterer. They're not entirely sure what he is worried about. Maybe he just has lacks eloquence. Maybe he's forgotten some of the language of the Egyptians. He's been gone so long. But whatever it is, Moses is saying, look, God, I just don't have the gifts to fulfill your calling. I'm not qualified to fulfill your calling. So we just finished watching The Lord of the Rings in our house, the best Christmas movie, no debate, out there. And this is really Graham's first time to have been able to understand mostly and go through all of the movies together. And there's one scene where Elrond the Elf gives Aragorn the reforged sword, the, the flame of the West, it's called, right? And uh, we kind of pause a little bit and I say, Graham, you know, how do you think Frodo is going to destroy the ring? How do you think Frodo's going to destroy the ring? And he's like, oh, well, he's going to use Aragorn's new sword to destroy the ring. Now, spoiler alert, that's not how Frodo does it. But there was a friend who was there as we talked about this, and he pointed out something really cool. He said, look, what Graham just showed, what he just displayed, is that all humans know a good story arc. All humans implicitly know a good story arc. Whenever you start in your calling or your quest, you never have the tools needed to complete it. You always have to be met along the way. Isn't it interesting, right? God meets us along the way. Notice what God says to Moses. It's not a light tongue or a quick, quick wit. That's not the gift that God gives to him. Listen to what he says. Who, who made man's mouth? 
Who makes a mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. It's one of my favorite verses, personally, as an encouragement to a teacher of the Bible. But notice this. Yahweh does not change anything about Moses' eloquence here. Right? He just says, I'm going to be with you. He doesn't change anything about his eloquence. He just says, I will be with you and teach you what you will say. Right? There's a pattern here. In all of our callings, we don't have enough. In all of our callings, we don't have enough. We just need God's grace today. That's what we need. We don't need God's grace for tomorrow. We just need God's grace for right now. Right? I can't think of any time in Scripture. I can't think of any time in Scripture where God's like, okay, here's everything you need for the task ahead. I'll see you later. I'll be back when you finish it. That's not how it works. In fact, there's something more important going on here. God's power is made perfect in weakness. God's power is made perfect in weakness. If we start with Moses and say, I'm too weak to do this, we're probably starting in a good place. Don't start anything by saying, yeah, I got this. I got this, God. No, it's good to start on our knees. Before we get a little too far ahead of ourselves, there's a different pitfall that we can also fall into. Look at verse 13. Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. It's interesting here, Moses uses the word for Lord Adonai, and it's an important contrast. This whole passage, God has been saying, hey, call me by my name. Call me Yahweh. And Moses is like, oh, Lord. There is a false deferential humility in Moses here. There's a false deferential humility in Moses here, and this is what it reminds us of. If God keeps telling you that He's going to accomplish something through you, don't tell Him He can't. Yeah, sure, you start in weakness and neediness, but let's not forget that God's grace empowers you. If you've been put in a certain place in your life, you should have some sort of expectation in faith that God will show up. God will show up. That is a good thing to believe. Now, it's really striking to me that Moses still isn't fully convinced, right? He goes back and he talks to his father-in-law, Jethro, and uh, this is what he says in verse 18, please let me go back to Egypt and see if my brothers are still alive. He still won't even say what his calling is. He won't tell him yet. Interesting. Maybe Moses still can't see what we can see. Moses can't see what we can see. That God's gifts and His calling to Moses and His grace and present to him, presence to him are not about Moses. It's not like God is just going to give a Mario mushroom to power us up so we can go and get it done. It's about God's power and God's presence. You see, Moses is not the shepherd leader that we need. We know that. Moses is still figuring that out. There's a different shepherd leader that we need, isn't there? We celebrate him this Christmas. Remember when God shows up to the shepherds? Such a beautiful, there's a, here's a sign for you. 
there's a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger in Bethlehem, showing up to the shepherds. Why does he show up to the shepherds? I think we actually find it in Micah chapter 5. This is the full prophecy from that chapter. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he should be their peace. At the end of the story, verses 29 through 31, all of these encouragements from God come together. Moses and Aaron speak the words to the people. They do the signs, and the people of God worship. They don't worship Moses. They worship God their Savior. On this Christmas, You've been given a great calling from God, but you know you can't do it. You know you can't do it. But we celebrate the servant leader who has come for us and for our salvation and has accomplished everything so that we can dwell secure and be at peace and worship God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for the callings that you've given us for the big and small tasks that you have set us out on. And Lord, we pray that as we walk these callings, would we first start in weakness and humility and worship. For it is you, Lord Jesus, for us and for our salvation who has accomplished everything so that we would have the faith to walk this life with Him. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.